This is Missing Peter Zosky in Prince George, broadcasting on CFUR 88.7, and I'm your host, Stuart Parker. Good Monday morning, Prince George, and welcome to the August 24th episode of Missing Peter Zosky in Prince George. This has been a full year of radio broadcasting for me from the city of Prince George, and uh, I've tremendously enjoyed it. So uh, this is the end of season one. Next week, season two will begin and uh, we'll have another full year of broadcasting here on CFUR 88.7. On our show this week, our monthly political panel, filling in for Jeremy Stewart of the BC Eco-Socialists is Nicole Lindsay, a co-worker of mine at the University of Northern BC, former editor of Hansard, and a uh, scholar, parent, and many other good things. Our regulars, Sam Schechter of the New Democrats, Ryan Campbell of the BC Liberals, uh, Cheryl Weens of the Green Party of British Columbia, and Nathan Gita of the BC Tories, calling in this time all the way from Churchill, Manitoba. They spoke on the weekend. Joining me on, uh, on the line uh, is um, this week's political panel, Returning, representing our New Democrat-inclined folks, uh, Sam Schechter. Um, Our Tory, Nathan Gita, is back, uh, calling in from Churchill, Manitoba. Uh, Cheryl Weens, our Green, from Langley. Uh, Nicole is filling in for um, uh, Jeremy Stewart for the Eco-Socialists. So a welcome to Nicole Lindsay from Prince George. And uh, rounding things out, Ryan Campbell, our uh, loyal BC liberal, formerly of Delta, now working from Vancouver. So uh, welcome back to the show, folks. Uh, how have things been? Good. <laughs> All right. Well, um, Now, I was very torn about this show. I was very excited to spend the show um, uh, really going at Rob Fleming's school reopening plan. And then people reminded me that I, in fact, we'd agreed to do something else. Uh, So so we're going to do that. And I have confidence that Rob Fleming's school reopening plan is still going to be news in a month. Uh, this This is my conviction. I don't think it's going anywhere. Now, we're getting back, though, to a sort of big question, and one that I think is going to age well when we syndicate this thing. Uh, We've, um, uh, because, well, Andrew Wilkinson did not exactly get the leadership of the BC Liberals by an enormous margin. Um, And his political strategy to get his small majority was not one that necessarily endeared him to the whole party, and so I think pretty naturally as opposition leader, having very little to hand out, um, he has to deal with a little bit more guff from his caucus than uh, John Horgan or Adam Olson might have to deal with. Uh, 
And more often than not, that guff comes in the form of a member of legislature for Chilliwack, Laurie Thruness. And Thruness makes statements that um, uh, play very well among members of the Christian right in British Columbia, who are a significant group in this province and who are supposedly part of the BC Liberals' Big Tent Coalition. So I guess my, my first question, I'll go to Ryan. When Laurie Thrones says something that is anti-abortion um, or viewed as transphobic or viewed as homophobic, um, and Andrew Wilkinson pushes back a little bit and says, no, that, that's not what we're talking about. Does that hurt the BC Liberals, or that, does that actually help to keep the big tent the size that it is? Um, well, maybe both, right? I think it definitely hurts the BC Liberals in, with more, with the swing uh, liberal NDP voters or liberal green voters, um, but I think it, it probably helps them keep the conservatives uh, at bay as well, right? So the liberals have a constant fear that, that the, their coalition will, will break apart. And Andrew Wilkinson's doing what uh, he feels he has to, I think, to keep that coalition together. So um, now, uh, when, um, uh, I guess one of the questions then is, this, it sounds to me like the only people who might not be thrilled with um, abortion or um, the SOGI program, things like that that, that, that pretty much everybody who is a social conservative is already in the BC Liberals and we're trying to retain them. But from the last federal election, it seems like a certain number of BC social conservatives exist inside the Green Party. Um, I'm curious, Cheryl, do you ever encounter these people? And if there are social conservatives in the Greens, how do they how do they get on in there? Yeah, so I myself have not come across that kind of a perspective in the BC Green Party, um, especially amongst the leadership. Um, in fact, we are very much uh, focused on, you know, I believe valid criticisms around our lack of diversity and inclusion in the party. And so um, certainly it's not a viewpoint that's, <clears throat> excuse me, brought up very frequently or at all that I've heard. Um, um, but it is something that we're known for. I, I know that uh, we get criticized as being conservatives who recycle. So, um, you know, I'm sure they exist, but I, I don't think it's, um, people feel too comfortable expressing those opinions, at least in, do you think that's a difference between the federal and provincial parties? Like, unlike the NDP, um, you guys don't force people to be members at both the federal and provincial level. That's correct. Do you think that that's, that's part of the reason? Because I think certainly, Ryan, you, you deal with a similar situation. Your party's federal, um, your party doesn't have a precise federal affiliation. Is part of this the fact that sort of, Conserv social conservatism is more in play at the federal level. I think uh, you're also uh, just sorry to, to maybe go on a tangent. Yeah, but, tangent away. 
I think you're discounting the number of uh, social conservatives are, that are in the NDP as well. That I, I work with, I work in the construction industry. I worked as a laborer for many years. There's a lot of social conservative uh, working class people that vote NDP. It's a question of priorities, right? But the, this might not be their identity or their priority, but they still have these social conservative views. I think every party has, has them to some extent. Um, it's a question of to what degree you empower them and, and welcome them. But uh, I don't think any party is immune to social conservatives. Now, Nathan, you represent a party that um, uh, has made your social conservative, your party has made some effort to attract social conservatives. Why do you think BC provincial politics is such an especially hard place to get people to make social conservative issues their number one priority when they go to vote? I think, I think a huge part of it is regionalism. Um, that's a huge part of it. And uh, obviously we're, we're a bunch of separated river valleys. I mean, we were supposed to be called New Caledonia for a reason. Um, and uh, those separated river valleys have a hard time communicating with each other. They usually unite on things they don't like rather on things they actually believe in together. Um, I, when, coming back to the question of, of where does that demographic lie, though, I mean, in the founding of British Columbia, uh, right into our Constitution, right, there's this impermeable barrier between church and state, uh, something that I really respect, ironically, as an as a extremely socially conservative and kind of a, a radically traditionalist Catholic. I, the thing that I respect about it is that it keeps, you know, what has happened in various other Catholic school boards across this country and other parochial schools that are publicly funded it keeps it from happening here in BC and they don't have a leg to stand on. They could go to BC Supreme. They could go to the Supreme court. They won't have a leg to stand on. They can't tell parochial schools here in British Columbia, what to do the way they have in Ontario, Alberta, Quebec, and everywhere else. So I think that with, when it comes to British Columbia, maybe at a certain level, SOCONs actually get almost too much up front at kind of a, at the basement level. Like they can just walk out the door and go to a parochial school, a private school and get everything they really want there or a local church. And so maybe at a political level, they just don't have as much they have to fight for so they can spread out into other parties and get uh, other priorities taken care of and not unite around those issues necessarily. Sam, how, your observations as a new Democrat who holds on to, you hold on to a certain number of social conservatives, do no work to keep them. Um, what are your thoughts? Well, I mean, I, I take to... A uh, good comment from Ryan that every party has a certain number of social conservatives and the NDP is included in that. Um, and uh, I think the, the best place to look at the NDP and, and see where the fissure begins, it's on, it's on the issue of gun control or gun rights, depending which side of the fissure you're on, uh, because that, that's where you start to see uh, some more socially conservative issues and where, where urban New Democrats tend to favor gun control and, and rural New Democrats often favor gun rights. Um, and, and that's the issue where it be, the fissure begins. And on the surface of it, you don't really get um, people in the NDP who are super passionate uh, firearms activists, activists to the point that that's their number one issue. And as a result, you, know, you, don't, you don't get the direct in-your-face tension because that's where, where it begins. Now, there, there are people with social conservative views in the NDP, but they're also such a minority that uh, it doesn't it isn't championed at any policy level. It isn't championed in caucus. It isn't uh, championed anywhere. 
And so it, it simply is a group of people who happen to disagree with the majority in the party. Uh, and the NDP is a big enough tent that that's always going to be true. There are always going to be people within the party who disagree with some uh, of the majority opinions. Um, and, you know, the, the New Democratic Party being a coalition has to make room for that. But I think it's fair comment to say that, you know, the, the central party doesn't work hard to retain its social conservatives, um, but they're there also for some base economic values like economic fairness, you know, workers' rights. They might be there because they're deeply entrenched in, in the labor movement, uh, but they, they grew up in a more conservative social milieu, uh, but that's not what they're fighting for politically. So, you know, it is a, another of the big tent parties. And it, honestly, it doesn't come up that much, not really, except for on the issue of, of gun control or gun rights when that issue uh, rears its head. So before I go to Nicole, uh, I want to, um, I'll set this up a little bit. Um, so uh, I was reading, um, you know, it's always dangerous to read Twitter um, but uh, we learned so much, uh, especially from the Covfefe hashtag. I think that's probably the most important place to learn on Twitter. But the um, one thing that I, I've noticed is, um, I mean, is that the shape of social conservatism is changing a little bit in the way that it did in the early 1980s. I was really struck when, um, when I watch a lot of... Um, Conservative pastors in the United States, conservative pastors in Canada, um, who are concerned about gender identity questions, are labeled TERFs on Twitter, in that they're called trans-exclusive radical feminists. So, for instance, in the, our present lexicon, Mike Pence is understood by a certain constituency of people to be a radical feminist. Um, and this is not totally... This new form of labeling is not totally out there. You'll notice that if you um, subscribe to um, the social media that uh, the people who run the Rape Relief Women's Shelter in Vancouver subscribe to, some of their news will come from radical feminist organizations in the United States, and some of their news will come from Christian right organizations in the United States, because radical feminists and the Christian right share now some uh some things in common politically as a party the eco-socialists went out there we courted radical feminists when we formed we courted uh transgender rights activists and um having both groups in the party i think nicole and i can attest to is about as fun as having pro and anti-brexit people in the labor party together um so in some ways, these questions of social conservatism are becoming universal. And so with that lead up, Nicole, how do we, wherever we are in the political spectrum, reconcile some of these existential questions within our parties, even if they're medium-sized tents? Um, well, I'll just speak from my own perspective. And I don't know if the Eco-Socialist Party is a big tent, party or if it aims to be it's still really in formation um, but from my own perspective and I don't identify as a radical feminist I identify as a sensible feminist are you okay you're just gonna have to wait a second all right now this is sensible feminism being enacted right now 
Yeah, that's right. Uh, I'm a full-time at-home homeschooling parent and my husband works in the resource industry six days a week for 12 to 13 hours a day when he's in town. So um, my perspective is everyone needs a safe, uh, safe spot to be, including women who identify as, you know, cisgendered women, including trans people. Everyone deserves to be safe. Doesn't need to, it's not more complicated than that. So, um, so this, I think, gets to uh, some pretty important questions about our coalitions, because up until recently, it's tended to be the big tent parties of the right that have uniquely, uniquely had to deal with um, um, questions of whether we're on, on a social issue dividing the party. And it strikes me that this is something that is really coming to be visited on all parties now, that um, there's a certain specialness the BC Liberals are losing. Um, I'm struck by an event that happened at the last NDP convention, where, um, of course, I'm there watching the NDP convention, hoping that somebody, that there's going to be like a floor resolution that's going to rebel on liquefied natural gas or Site C or the stuff that affects me. But there was only really one rebellious vote at the last NDP convention. A resolution was passed to ask John Horgan to stop saying brothers and sisters in his speeches. A resolution that John Horgan immediately defied, which caused a bunch of people to rush into rooms to try and caucus about whether to try and get another resolution um, dealing, with, um, dealing with this. Um, and of course, we saw the same sort of grumblings at the last NDP convention that every candidate for every office in the party before they can run for that office now has to be asked, are you a woman first? And um, so I'm curious, uh, and so I'm looking actually for folks to make some, some predictions here. Is this a temporary state that parties are going into, or are we going to see um, an increasing division within all our parties around what Americans would call social issues, questions of gender, questions of the body, questions of etiquette and discourse about how to talk about those things. Uh, sir, I'll jump in on that. And the first point I'll make is that there's nothing new about this. There, there's nothing new about uh, the cutting edge of, of social progress or identity politics or um, uh, nomenclature and language. There's nothing new about some people leading the charge and some people resisting it. Uh, the, the, the real, you know, you described the, the most recent uh, uh, battle on the convention floor at the BCADB convention. Uh, I, I don't think that's what the big battle was uh, at, at that convention. Uh, I think it was uh, around process. And um, it wasn't that exciting to our listeners, I don't think. Uh, but the, the crux of the matter was about um, party governance, internal party governance. The other big issue that you were speaking to um, was, was one about the name of the formerly named Women's Rights Committee, which is now uh, the Women and Gender Rights Committee. Uh, and that's speaking to the issue you're talking about. And yes, that's where, where some people were saying, well, 
what what is the mandate of this committee? Because historically, the feminist mandate was about elevating the status of women in society and securing rights. Uh, and then, you know, in, in recent decades, people have started to say, well, you know, let's get away from binary gender definitions. Let's start thinking about uh, gender uh, more fluidly, more openly, more inclusively. And that committee had to have a, a, a little uh, internal discussion about, well, is it the mandate to be inclusive or is it specific to one particular group, which you alluded to, women? And that to me was the, the big battle at convention, but it didn't happen on the convention floor. Um, but it, it's nothing new within the NDP to be wrestling over uh, the, the cutting edge of, of politics and, and trying to reach a, I won't say a consensus within the party, but at least something that 51% uh, of the party can get behind. So it, it, it is every convention, not just the most recent convention where this battle takes place. Cheryl. Yeah, um, I just think it might be an interesting sort of anecdote to add that at our last uh, AGM, at our last convention, the BC Greens changed the name of their ombudsman to ombudsperson or just simply ombuds. And you changed it back. It was that in 1994. <laughs> Sorry, go on. Go okay. on back to your answer. I, that was just a minor eruption. No worries. Um, so, uh, you know, and this is all in an attempt to be more inclusive and to not indicate that this position needs to be filled by a man, of course. And I think it is an important, while it may seem symbolic and, and really it is, um, it, it also, you know, it communicates a direction that we want to go into and an overall intention to be more inclusive and to be mindful of the power of words. And so, um, you know, I think that's just one thing that the BC Greens have done in this last year that have really indicated the direction that they want to move in is an inclusive one. So, um, is this going to get to be, is this going to get tougher or easier, or is it, as Sam says, pretty much more of the same? I think it'll just shift, right, to different issues. Like, eventually we'll get used to the new words, and, and we'll use they and them more easily, and, um, you know, maybe there'll be a new hum human rights issue that we hadn't considered previously. Um, so I'm just, uh, the, uh, the, I mean, so just to make an observation, I think both you and Sam represent, um, progressive -ism in the way that you talk. You have this sense that there is a direction that society is going, that the direction is inexorable, and that the party just needs to figure out what that direction is, just needs to figure out where the arc of society is pointing. Um, is that a what? Uh, I'm interested in hearing the other three of you on whether you think about um, these sort of central social issues as in that sort of progressive context or whether you have a different structure for thinking about them. I can, I can say pretty definitively that I don't hold that view. <laughs> um, well, thank you, Nathan. This is why we need you. I, I, I guess I guess this is exactly where things kind of take off on both sides. I I mean, obviously, I hold to that more tragic sense uh, that uh, you know 
that that tragic sense that at some point we've taken a wrong turn and uh, we keep tumbling down the stairs, um, you know, and for some of us, uh, you know, that was the Reformation. For some of us, it was industrialization. For some of us, it was that burger I ate last night. Uh, it depends on where you want to track that from. But but I, I guess my response would be fundamentally, um, you, at some point, you have to answer the question, do we still believe in, in whatever way you want to talk about, an ontological sense of nature, a empirical sense of nature, that there are things that are what they are definitively. Uh, you cannot argue it, right? A man cannot menstruate, uh, right, as a definitive argument, right? Only a biological female can. Um, as words get twisted, as curriculums get changed as uh, new new things are put forward uh, and so this is that's kind of my argument I, I i guess at a certain level you know if you strip everything else away i'm a i don't know if nature is the prop, proper term for that or an essentialist it's just there, there are things that are and those things are immutable and unchangeable and we are now at a point in my humble opinion where progressivism philosophically politically and literally uh, in the world is attempting to basically say that that isn't so. And I, I fundamentally reject it. And, and I think that's where 98% of their problems come from, let alone some of their electoral losses. I mean, at some point, you have to concede that there are things that are. Uh, and you can't just, you cannot, you cannot change the sun. You can't remake things. There, there are things that are eternal. Ryan. Uh, I'm a social progressive, so I, I, I'm, I'm going to, unfortunately for you, not, not stir the pot too much. So I, I side with the, the green and, and, <laughs> responses here too that I, I think that you know to, to me like we're talking about transgender specifically my gender identity to me is is a natural thing that I, I there's no choice in it about being a man and so I take for granted that a transgender man or a transgender woman that it's the same thing for them that they're just doing what they feel is natural and I think that should be uh, respected and yeah, I think it stays there. In, in, in general, I, I'm also a, uh, a a liberal in the sense that if you're not harming someone else, which this isn't, uh, that you should be generally left alone. Nicole, how do you uh, how do you sort of look at this ideologically? Well, um, maybe this is mm, too optimistic, uh, but I feel like eventually all the assholes are going to die. <laughs> Eventually, all the people who can't understand that everybody uh, deserves to be valued on the basis of how they identify themselves, that it's no one else's decision <laughs> to say you are this or you are not that, eventually all those people will grow old and die. And then we can move on with things. I mean, it's interesting, this idea that who you are is what you decide you are, because like, that's um, really a lot of bad relationships go that way, right? It's like, no, I am not a bully. No, I am not beating you. Um, I'm not a wife beater. I get to decide that. Or Donald Trump, I am smart. I get to decide that. You can't tell me I'm not smart. I identify as smart. And it's interesting to see the power of that, right? Because Donald Trump has in fact created a social movement that believes he's smart. More people in the world today would say Donald Trump is smart than would identify any other person as smart. But I, I've yet to see any black person not get shot by the cops by identifying as white the second before the bullets fired. Mm -hmm.
breaking briefly for station identification. This is Missing Peter Zosky in Prince George on CFUR 88.7 on your FM dial. I am the host, Stuart Parker. Our rebroadcast time is on Saturday mornings at 9 o'clock. And uh, you can also find us on Anchor FM or uh, the show's website if you'd like to download this as a podcast. I think that, I mean, identity is a very complex thing. We have a lot of places to go. And the place I'm going to go is a surprising one. I'm going to go tactical here. Because, again, of a weird experience I had in the Eco-Socialist Party, I had um, a little too few many cannabis-infused beverages yesterday. And so people bothered me, and I said, no, don't talk to nuclear power advocates. Um, they're, they're politically homeless because nuclear power is a third rail in British Columbia. Every political party has agreed to the uranium mining moratorium, and every political party has agreed to not talk about the uranium mining moratorium. Now, there's an argument to be made about the political history of this province that religion, and in particular socially conservative religion, is a third rail. That if your party embraces it, it will blow up because we have a consensus that no party should embrace it. And this is people's story of why the Social Credit Party fell. That Bill Vanderzam was the first avowed anti-abortion social conservative premier. And as a consequence, the party went from a, major a 49 seat majority government to seven seats as a third party and was then obliterated the following election, never to be seen again. And so, one of, the, one of the things that it makes a third rail in politics different from just an unpopular position is the idea that even having a position and articulating it is viewed as a violation of the larger social contract of the place. So one of the questions I have here is, I thought there was only one third rail in BC politics and it was abortion. And then yesterday I went, oh, right, uranium is the other third rail. So I'm interested in folks' sense of, is social conservatism a third rail or is it just an unpopular position? And what generally do you think about this third rail theory? Is it an idea from US politics I pulled in incorrectly or do we have third rails here? So I, I tend think part to... of, of the problem is kind of both. Sorry, go ahead, Nathan, and then Cheryl. I'll let I'll let you go ahead. Sure. Right. No, I think it's kind of both. Um, I think that part of it is that certainly everyone's decided to not uh, to not talk about abortion, whatever. But the other problem is that if you're going to compare it to the states, this isn't to the states. You know, goals for uh, no. Their third rail is social security, not abortion. Right, the, an American third rail is social security. It's not Sorry? abortion. I'm just saying third rail no, as an enough. idea is an American idea. 
Well, maybe that is. Maybe it is. I guess what I'm kind of, I'm not trying to get into, I'm not trying to argue nitty gritty terminology here. I'm just saying that, that the thing is in, in BC and in all of Canada, indeed, is that the criminality of abortion is a federal matter and the funding of abortion is a political one or a provincial political one. So, so even if you were to try and carry that bucket, which way could you carry it is kind of is kind of my response right and it doesn't matter which way you try to you try to square that circle in canada that was the old joke about canadian politics it wasn't was it right was it wrong was it ethical was it ethical was does the division of powers explain to us who is supposed to be in charge here and that would be kind of i mean maybe that's an unfair dodge but that would be my response i don't i don't know if it's necessarily a third rail in bc it's just like anywhere else in this country, who know, who's supposed to fund the Trans Canada? Who pays for the bridge? Who deals with this this particular campus or that particular campus? There's always two mastheads on every bloody building project in this country. Who's actually in charge of anything? So I don't think you can really. I don't. I don't know if you can actually make the argument because basically you'd have to say that both at the federal and provincial level, if both weren't talking about it. Then you could say that's a third rail in this country. But otherwise, uh, you're. It's more of a nobody maybe knows who's supposed to make the decision about this question. Cheryl. Yeah, so I think that, you know, Andrew Wilkinson in particular would love for this um, evangelical social conservatism to be a third rail. And he's sort of making claims that it is. But time after time, especially here in the Valley, we see BC Liberal MLAs crossing that line that we spoke of earlier between church and state, um, attending Catholic fundraisers for crisis pregnancy centers, which Coleman spoke on the steps of the legislature just, I believe it was last year, um, about being anti-abortion, calling abortion completely wrong, um, saying nothing about a woman's right to choose, and then saying that he would, you know, pray for these people that they would get what they want. So, you know, and then you have Lori Thronis, you know, refusing to stop advertising in a Christian magazine that does not support transgender rights. So it comes up too often by uh, elected MLAs that then get re-elected to be an actual third rail. And so um, while the leader may want it to be because he wants to continue on with his economic agenda, the social issues are, are, are not gone. They're there and, and they continue to simmer. Uh, Sam. Yeah, I'm going to agree with Cheryl here about, uh, about basically you're asking about abortion. Abortion is most definitely not a third rail issue in BC. The NDP, uh, I'll say has either unanimity or near unanimity in its party. Certainly the caucus that has unanimity on the issue and they will attack any BC liberal MLA who makes a controversial public position known about abortion, attends a fundraiser, makes a speech, uh, they, they, will, they will go after that uh, liberal member any chance they get. Uh, it, it's a, a bigger problem for the BC Liberals because the NDP is unified on its position, maybe more clearly than on any other issue, the NDP is unified. Whereas the BC Liberals, caucus after caucus, always have a few outlier uh, MLAs who are proudly advocating a position that their leader never wants to get behind and never wants featured. But, you know, some of these MLAs may rely on that 
message for their fundraising base. They may rely on it to hold on to, to, to win a nomination in the first place or to continue securing the support of their membership. Uh, they may uh, you know, simply have an ideological charge that they want to represent and they're not going to be silenced about it. But it's a, it's a much bigger fish here in the BC Liberal Party, I think, than probably anybody else. And I, I can't see calling it a third rail because it does come up during election campaigns and it does come up between them. Um, uh, to the issue of, of uranium mining, I don't think, I mean, maybe it's a third rail issue, but I think even more than that, it's, a, it's not a pressing issue. Uh, and I don't want to get into the politics of Site C here, uh, but BC has such an abundant supply of non-nuclear energy that, you know, everybody can kind of say, well, we don't need to go down that road, at least not yet, not anytime soon. Certainly it's an option. And I'm sure that those advocates are presenting their messages to, uh, to the energy minister whenever they can get an audience, but there's just no impetus for any party to act on it in government. It's just not pressing. It, I mean, I, I'm trying to think of a, an issue as insignificant, like federally, you know, how come nobody gets upset about the Canada space program? Well, it's really just not something that people get excited about. Actually, I think it's the same guys. Um, I, I think it's the I same guys be. who send us emails about nuclear power are also upset about the, the, the Canada space program. I, I'm totally picturing the guy. I met that guy uh, in Kelowna in 2012. My friends and I still refer to him as Thorium Dude. Um, there's, there's a lot to be said about Thorium in, a, in a, a certain social circle of like, incels who decided to not focus on misogyny, but instead on energy questions, which I think is probably good. Um, now, I'm, so just to, to just go a little bit further into this third rail thing, I'm not suggesting necessarily that the mere mention of something involves touching the third rail. Lots of American politicians discuss social security. They just don't table legislation in the house. Um, Federally, as we know, the way the Green Party got into trouble was not by saying it was anti-abortion. It was saying that it wouldn't kick members out of caucus for tabling anti-abortion legislation because that was the nature of the agreement federally. Stephen Harper was an anti-abortion prime minister who was nevertheless encompassed within that deal. You can say whatever you want about abortion when you pander to your base, but you can't send anti-abortion legislation to second reading. And if it's tabled in the House, whoever tables it loses their spot in the party. And I think that we've seen the same thing with both abortion and uranium in British Columbia, that people might have a conversation about it, but you don't introduce legislation about it. That that's, that's where Bill Vanderzam went over the line and no one else did. Um, so with that in mind, like imagining a collegial world, like imagining that this show radiates out into the world and that my word of my private affability gets out there. Um, and we, we have this lovely group. Um, what do you guys think are things we should keep off the debate table in terms of legislation? What are the things that 
um, should be subject to this. Should uranium money be in there? Should abortion be in there? And what else should be in there in terms of a multi-party agreement of things you don't make laws about? Sam. Stuart, I'm going to jump in right now. The issue that no party wants to take on is the monarchy. We, I don't think any of us really like it. But by God, it's a loser issue and it's a federal one. But I mean, that the monarchy doesn't provide any meaningful value to the provincial legislature. I mean, it's great that we, you know, have a, a golden stick in the middle of the room and somebody gets to hold the golden stick and put it down. And then there's a speech from the lieutenant governor who's appointed, not by the queen. Um, but, you know, that, that pomp and circumstance is great but it's such a loser issue, but it's just not worth the time to take on. And there are monarchists in BC, and I don't know what party they support. We've got them in the NDP. Um, and it's just, there's no winning that issue. That's the one, Stuart. My great-grandmother, Edith Sumpton, I remember uh, visiting her for the first time. I only met her twice before she died. She was 98 at the time. And I remember her, she was, she was in this home in Sydney, uh, the suburb of Victoria, just surrounded by royal family memorabilia. And what she said is, well, you know, Ned and me, we've always voted NDP. We've always voted NDP because we're firm royalists. We're firm royalists. You know, I've always, I've always loved the Queen and the, the New Democrats. You know, the other day we was this close to Davy Barrett, this close. Isn't that right, Ned? <laughs> and you know, the conversation went on from there. But uh, yeah, you never know where you're gonna find your monarchists. Um, it's a good point. Um, to move to looking at this issue the opposite way. So when I was, um, uh, when I had a really satisfying conversation with the CBC news anchor in 1996, whose name was Kevin Evans at the time. And he said, you know, you're right. There is a media conspiracy against the green party. And, you know, we've broken out of that. We tried to include you in the debate, blah, blah, blah. Um, so I don't want you to think there's no media conspiracy, but the media conspiracy against you guys doesn't hold a candle to the media conspiracy against the anti-abortion movement. We never cover their protests. They can get 12,000 people to a protest. It won't appear on television. Um, there's a huge agreement there. And of course, we can look at the polls. We can see that anti-abortionists, 30% of the Canadian population, um, people who, they did some instant polls about J.K. Rowling's views on transgender rights, 70% of the UK population agreed with her. When we get to this level where we're making these deals about what gets on the floor in the legislature, what gets on TV, are we going too far in silencing or excluding really, really huge portions of the population numbering in the millions? Uh, interested in all kinds of takes here. Uh, Ryan, you made a gesture. You're up. I would say, yes, it is a problem. And I, I would say, I, I had a conversation with Linda Steele about this a little while ago, that <clears throat> that people were accusing her of of being part of some media conspiracy on the COVID virus, which obviously is, is not the case. 
but she was saying, well, no one tells me what to cover. And that may be true, but the fact that most of the journalists in this province are friends with each other means that they tend to make decisions that are very similar to one another. And frankly, I'm the center-right kind of guy. I usually agree with those decisions, but that doesn't make it right or fair. <laughs> That's the case. And one case that very much I did not agree with, I think there was a media campaign against uh, the proportional representation movement. That uh, and, uh, There's still a media campaign against that uh, our movement. And uh, so that's just the case that sticks in my craw the most because I happen to be on the wrong side of it. But I, I do think there is a, a huge media conspiracy on a number of issues or not conspiracy, but a, 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 a um, campaign on a number of issues, uh, whether it's intentional and organized or not, isn't really the issue. It still is. And, uh, and I think it's a problem. I think. Can I push you a little further though? What happens when parties create the kinds of agreements that parties have around things like the abortion question that are very similar to the kind of oligopoly behavior that the media is engaged in? Yeah. I, I, I don't know. Like I, that's a tough one. Cause I, I, I'm not an anti-abortion activist by any stretch. I'm very pro-choice. Um, so, I mean, it doesn't bother me as much, but uh, yeah, I think it's, I think we can have discussions about these things in, in, in the open. Um, because like you say, if you start putting, pushing these discussions into closed quarters and, and excluding people, it probably has unintended consequences. Um, Nicole, you haven't spoken in a bit. Uh, your observations on this. Sure, yeah. I guess the, the only thing I really have to say about that is that just because a lot of people think a thing doesn't make it right. Right. So we're the, this is the climate change angle, that in fact, if you base your views on pseudoscience or junk science or voices in your head, then we can treat it as a different category of view. Well, there is a, an objective reality out there. And there's also, I would say, objective morality and ethics. Okay, well, Nathan is usually our objective morality and ethics defender. That's, uh, so I'm glad we've got two now. Uh, Nathan, your thoughts on this? I, I actually would take a different tact on this. I would simply say, let democracy reign. Uh, democracy must be allowed uh, to flourish. And what that requires is in a representative system such as ours, members, which are kind of like uh, little uh, arbiters between the people and the sovereign. I believe that was de Tocqueville's term, um, just like civil society. They, they must be allowed to speak on behalf of those who have elected them, and they must be able to speak freely. Perhaps you can shout them down from the gallery. Perhaps you can, you know, bring out a, you know, uh, you know, you can a gavel and, and try and bring, bring them down whatever way you want to, but they must be given the place to speak. And if they are able to move their agenda forward or convince others through their rhetoric, then it does have to get tabled and it does eventually have to get to a serious committee discussion about what that legislation might mean. And I, I mean that for all, uh, for all viewpoints of every kind, because that is what I believe democracy is supposed to mean. That's why we call it parliament, the place of speaking or legislature. And uh, we need to be able to talk about those things freely and frankly. And if we can't, thanks to media censorship or because the whips in the parties have become such tight pollsters, they can't, they can't be bothered to have any principles at all. I, I, I don't see much of a hope for this thing we call democracy. 
Uh, all right, uh, the government. No, sorry, I, I was I meant you too, Cheryl. <laughs> okay, so I think that um, the media and political parties have definitely different roles in this. You know, the media needs to give accurate coverage of a wide range of issues so that we don't have what we have now, which is people going off to alternative media, to far left or far right um, um, news outlets or news outlets, you know, quote unquote, and um, getting uh, radicalized or, you know, reading fake news and they don't know it and sharing it. Um, and um, so, you know, the media, I believe in a number of ways is not doing its job that way right now. But parties, um, while I do believe they should encourage, you know, grassroots, you know, activism and listen to their members, obviously, um, there should be certain issues where that you deem to be human rights issues that are non-negotiable. Um, and so the federal Green Party was really a wake-up call, like in the last election, um, to us, I believe, in that you know, we don't whip our, our um, representatives in our party. And so it's very important then that we vet them for those values. Do they respect transgender rights? Um, do they respect a woman's right to choose? And not allowing people who don't um, believe those things to run for us. And, you know, I don't feel that's anti-democratic because they can go to other parties. Other parties will probably happily have them, but in our party, we stand for human rights, so, um, and acceptance. So that's where I come down on the issue. Sam? <coughs> uh, Stuart, what's your question? Um, uh, I, was just, I was just interested in whether, um, and how you felt about political parties participating in those, that kind of consensus to foreclose debate. There seems to be a general view that the media should not be foreclosing debate, but that um, cross-partisan agreements to foreclose debate about major issues are um, something that uh, we're figuring out how we feel about. Uh, to the issue of the media foreclosing a debate, I I'm gonna uh, invoke Dave Barrett, who was a radio host for a while after he was premier. And he tried to make sure, regardless of his personal views, that, that every side got a say on his radio show, except for one, one that he would never allow on, and that was Holocaust deniers. Uh, now, that, that's, I think, a sensible choice, that a responsible media outlet does not give a platform to a Holocaust denier. Um, and I think Barrett made the right choice. There are some positions, issues, beliefs that do not deserve a platform. People can go out and create their own platforms and if they're popular enough, they'll get picked up. And that is happening. That does happen. We have, we have a plethora of that happening. Um, so the, the issue of political parties uh, foreclosing debates, I don't think that there's any sense, well, on the abortion issue in, in, in uh, some parties, yeah, that they have to, the, the caucus leadership has to clamp down a bit for the sake of electoral tactics. Uh, they know that they have a, a, a political tent and that they cannot sustain that charge through an election campaign of, of being 
um, either pro-abortion or open to the idea. Um, but in terms of, of foreclosing, politicians, they can pick up when there's a loser issue in front of them and they just don't want to run with it. You know, is it that um, uh, the Canada Space Agency is such a loser issue that no MP wants to run with it? I guess. Otherwise, there'd be some MP trying to stake out their turf and, and you know, leading the charge about making sure that the Canada Space Agency is, is you know, the future of our technological development in this country. But honestly, you're not going to win any votes. You're not going you know, to sway the Dryden? public on this. Uh, um, well, no, um, uh, but you know, back to the issue of uranium um, uh, mining in BC. I don't think there's a me member of the legislature who's thinking, "Yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna break through politically on the issue of uranium mining." And I think it's that natural political instinct that is causing the effect you're discussing. I don't think it's a sense of foreclosure before debate. I think it's a sense of there is no popular support for this idea, so I'm gonna lead the charge on an issue where there is popular support. So, um, but tell me about right. Ken. Uh, no, I, I just, um, uh, the, the space agency was one of his things in his failed leadership bid where he did way, way worse than uh, everybody thought he would. Um, Emphasis on uh, failed. Emphasis yes. on failed. Yes, that's why I said this is what happened to Ken Dryden. Uh, so, uh, yes, why not a Canadian Space Force? Um, okay, folks, we've, um, we've managed to um, soak up uh, a pile of time uh, today. Um, get, talking about some of these general process issues in, uh, in BC politics. Um, now, we're, um, we are likely not to have um, Nicole Lindsay back because uh, Jeremy Stewart is coming back for next broadcast. So I'd like to ask Nicole to queue up our subject for next show. It's a bit of an unfair thing to dump on you, but We've got, uh, between now and the next show, we have um, the uh, drug poisoning epidemic um, that we'll be marking on August 31st. We have kids going back to school um, into a plan that by Rob Fleming that not everyone is thrilled with. And we have a pile of other stuff coming down on us in the fall. Um, if you were to pick the subject of our next show, Nicole, how would you like us to start off next time? Well, I would love to hear people's thoughts on um, the August 31st um, International uh, Opioid Overdose Awareness Day. Um, my son died in 2018 as a result of the poison drug supply. He was 21 years old. So this issue is quite near and dear to me. And, uh, and so far what I see is a lot of inaction. Um, I wholeheartedly believe that there are people who by dragging their feet in, in politics and in positions of power and doing nothing are responsible for the son, the, my son's death and the deaths of so many others in BC. So, And um, we're gonna have you back next week to talk about that. You and Scott Costin will be our guests next week, but um, all right, folks, we've got four weeks to uh, talk uh, to uh, get ready for next show and um, to talk about um, 
the epidemic that um, is competing very strongly against COVID for um, killing our uh, sons and daughters, brothers and sisters in this province. Uh, on that note, thank you all very much for participating. This is a, uh, it's a great show. It's an honor to have spent the past hour with you all. This has been another broadcast of Missing Peter Zosky in Prince George on CFUR 88.7, co-sponsored by Los Altos Institute, L-O-S-A-L-T-O-S dot C-A. Thank you.